I'm late. I'm late. Very, very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. We're more than a year into this pandemic. People are getting vaccinated now, and life is starting to return slowly to normal. Still, many of us are coming to terms with the ways COVID-19 changed our lives. My guests today have had different experiences during the pandemic, both in their personal lives and especially in their work. Jane Baldwin-Sasso is a physical therapist in upstate New York who works with children and the elderly. She's also my sister. David Gould works in New York City and plays clarinet with some of the world's most prestigious ensembles. But first, I'm speaking with Dr. Odette Hall, the Suffolk County Medical Examiner here on Long Island. Last spring, when the pandemic started with its sudden deaths and makeshift morgues, I wondered how medical examiners like Dr. Hall grappled with their work. She started our conversation by explaining what a medical examiner does. So we're looking for people who were not under doctor's care, died unnaturally, died with no known medical conditions. Inherent in the phrase medical examiner is the word examine. You're there to examine and find out how they died? Correct. And not everyone gets an examination. So most people automatically think autopsy. So when we think of examination, we're saying the broad heading of sort of forensic examination. That can be an external exam. So if we have enough information or family objects, there are situations where we will sort of say we cannot honor your objection and it would take a court order to prevent us from doing the autopsy because we have the right to perform an autopsy at our discretion. So people can actually object to an autopsy being performed on religious grounds? Absolutely. And you have to defer to them? What if it's part of a criminal investigation? 
So in cases of threats to public health or concern or suspicion of a homicide, that is where we will not honor the objection without a court order or a judge's order to say, no, you cannot perform this autopsy. So in those situations, we will tell the family, we hear your objection, but this is a threat to public health or concern or suspicion of a homicide. So we will take it to court. And in that situation, we would contact the county attorney, say we have a case that needs to go to court to override an objection and then they'll take it from there. Then it goes lawyer to lawyer. And ultimately, if a judge says you cannot perform this autopsy, then our hands are tied. Now, I don't want to speak with any kind of a casualness about the subject of death, this horrible time in the lives of their families and friends and loved ones. But what would you say in terms of the cases you handle? What's the top three? Actually, the vast majority of our cases are people who just have undiagnosed natural conditions. Then we get into accidents. And then from there, we'll get into suicides. And let me sort of put the caveat on accident that our drug overdoses are classified as accidents as well. When we get into certifying death, you're talking about cause of death and you're talking about manner of death. So by training, the cause of death is the physiologic derangements that happen that causes a person's life to cease. That's the formal definition. That's what's drilled into you as a fellow. <laughs> so you die of a heart attack, but the heart attack was caused by a bucket of cocaine. The manner of death would be accident because you're under the influence of cocaine, which is known to be a cardiovascular irritant. So we can find a completely blocked artery. But if you're positive for cocaine, then cocaine becomes contributory and your manner of death becomes an accident because that contributed to the cardiovascular irritation. Is it, do levels of drugs tell you when it's a suicide? Well... It does, but suicide is the hardest manner for a medical examiner to prove. The burden of proof to call something a suicide is on us. Just because a person has a high level of drugs and the family says there is no suicidal ideation history, there's no suicide attempt history, there's no note, this came out of the blue, but this person has this sky-high level of drugs. We have the option of calling that undetermined if we feel there's no reason why this level should exist in this person except for the fact that you took a whole vial of pills. And that can only be intentional. But if we do not have firm ground to stand on, we have to pull back from suicide. Speaking of that, I mean, we're all human beings. Do some medical examiners tend out of a kind of grace toward the family? To not make the call of a suicide unless you're a thousand percent sure it was a suicide. That's the vast majority of the reason why we don't make that call, because it is one of the most delicate manners of death to call. It Mm. is very, very traumatic to the family. So if you are not a hundred percent sure that that is what the person did, and especially when we get into our older population that may have issues with dementia, it could be an issue of I'm supposed to take two pills, but did I take my two pills already? Well, let me take two more. And then Mm. an hour later, they forgot that they took the two pills. So they took two more. So by the end of the day, they've got the equivalent of 10 pills in their stomach and blood levels that are through the roof. But I can't call that person a suicide. So you have to kind of default to undetermined. Where are you from originally? Jamaica, Queens. You're born in Jamaica. Born and raised. And, And where did you train for this job? I got my undergraduate degree from Spelman College in Atlanta, where I majored in biology pre med. Where'd you go to medical school? So I went to SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn. And then when you left, did you know this is what you wanted to do? I went into medical school wanting to be an OBGYN, believing in women's care for women. But then ultimately you go through all kinds of clinical rotations in medical school. And I did not enjoy (laughs) OBGYN rotations. You didn't? Oh, not at all. Ultimately, I just found that I did not enjoy, you know, chasing lab values, chasing x-rays. I enjoy talking to patients. Oh my gosh, I love talking to patients. They tell you their whole life stories and people's life stories are 
fascinating, but I didn't enjoy the sort of cover your hiney approach to medicine. But interesting how you went from the beginning of life to the end of life. Yes. When did you make that decision to get into the work you're doing now? I was very, very fortunate to have attendings who watched me throughout my rotations. And they said, you know, your interests seem to peak when you're touching and you're seeing something. Like, so you're either a surgeon or a pathologist. And I said, I am not a surgeon. You know, I'll, I'll tell a funny story on actually my OBGYN rotation. We were doing an ectopic pregnancy surgery and they have to remove the whole fallopian tube. So they put it in the cup. They put it off to the side and they say it's going to pathology. I said, well, you know, can I go see it? I want to see what a fallopian tube looks like. And they're like, okay. So I go upstairs to the lab and in the lab accessioning area, there are just buckets of specimens that have come up from the OR. So I find out where my specimen went and I go over and I like, I open the jar And everyone in the lab is staring at me. And I'm just like, oh, my God, am I doing something wrong? They're like, what does it look like? I was like, you sit here all day with all these specimens and you don't look at them? Like, oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. And it was kind of like, yeah, you're a pathologist. So I started taking pathology electives and sort of shadowing pathology residents and talking to pathology attendings and finding out what it is that they do and grossing specimens and looking at things underneath the, the microscope. And they call you the doctor's doctor because essentially you're, you're almost a consultant to doctors. Pathology literally means study of? Disease and injury in the human body. There you go. And forensic pathology is pathology that has medical legal implications to it. Your focus is unnatural deaths. So it's sort of a little branch off of pathology. So to become a forensic pathologist, you have to first do pathology training. So I did my pathology training at the University of California, Irvine. And every pathology resident has to do a rotation in forensics. So I go to the Orange County Medical Examiner's Office, and I had a wonderful attending who just kept on saying, oh, Dad, you want to be a forensic pathologist? I was like, no. I don't want to testify in court. I don't want to, uh, no, 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 no. Interesting. And he just kept on sort of asking me. And by the end of the rotation, it's kind of like, ooh, can I sit in on that case? Can I do that case? He was just like, you sure you don't want to be a forensic pathologist? I was like, okay, maybe. <laughs> but interesting how in the medical examiner's office or in something related, there's a quasi-legal yes, function. absolutely. As you said, I don't want to testify in court. And a lot of people who do what you do, that's part of the job. And I think it's just because I'm a relatively bashful person. And I don't like attention on me in that manner. But you get on there and you just get into a zone and you realize they're asking you questions about what you did. And if you're 100% confident in what you did, then speaking on it doesn't become a problem. And also they teach you to focus on the jury. You're teaching the jury, trying to get them to understand what it is that happened in this case. And when you put it in that context, it becomes a more relaxing experience because it's kind of like, I can talk about what I do. I enjoy what I do. So telling you what I do as lay people That felt better to me. But also you're a profound part of the criminal justice system and bringing justice and finding out what really happened to somebody, correct? Correct. But it's very, very, very important to maintain objectivity. I speak to findings 99.9 times out of 100. You're being called by the DA's office. However, you're a neutral witness. I am just speaking to what the body told me and what conclusion I came to based on what the body told me. And that is it. And when I'm meeting with DAs, I often tell them that I've got to give this information. I will not withhold anything. I will not truncate anything. I have to speak to the facts of the case. And they understand that. But sometimes it helps the defense and not the prosecution. Well, explain to people the difference between a medical examiner and a coroner. It's very sensitive. Without any (laughs) intramural jokes you have, other than the greatness of one versus the kind of greatness of the other. It it is one of those things where it is sort of this medical examiner, coroner, you know, who's greater. What's the difference? 
So coroners are elected and coroners do not have to be physicians and they don't have to be medical examiners. So they're more like police. Correct. They could be police. They could be politicians. And their function is typically what? They do issue cause and manner of death, but they issue it based on somebody else's findings. So now tradition, that was historic coroner's office. You're really not going to find coroner's office that aren't staffed and run by medical examiners. They're going to perform the autopsies. They may turn over the findings and they may come to the conclusion of the cause and manner of death. But sometimes it is under the discretion of the coroner's office to sort of say whether or not they're going to bless that cause and manner of death. Now, you started in the medical examiner's office when? How long ago? August 2009. What would you say has been the significant change you've seen in the work you've done in the last 12 years? Has the office changed much in its tasks? No. In terms of the basics and performing forensic examinations, that doesn't change much. Some of the technology may change, but the fundamental of doing the exam doesn't change. What are some of the changes you've seen in terms of the work of your office during the COVID? Beyond deaths by COVID. So initially, it was just learning to adjust to being in the midst of a pandemic where there were going to be an increasing number of deaths. So by definition, COVID is under the jurisdiction of the medical examiner's office because it's a threat to public health. However, largely it's death from natural causes. It's death from a natural event. And the vast majority of them actually aren't coming to the medical examiner's office. They will be in hospitals. However, all things death the medical examiner sort of becomes a portal to what do we do with the increasing number of deaths? What do we do with storage of increasing numbers of people dying? What do we do with these death certificates? How do we worry the death certificates? So in terms of body storage, what we didn't realize because of COVID, everyone's reducing staff. That applies to cemeteries, crematoriums. I wonder if we'll come out of the COVID with so many things changed. We've been Certainly. forced to confront these changes, and we wonder how those changes will be permanent, in which the handling of these death arrangements will change permanently, which people will sit there and go, it almost doesn't matter what we do with the body. But, but let me ask you another question, mm-hmm. which is, so you're, you live in Suffolk. I live in Suffolk. You yeah. live in the suburbs. Yes. And when you're out in Suffolk County, which has less of what and more of what crime-wise? It's interesting because I trained in the city, the New York City office of the chief medical examiner. So I spent two years there training in forensics. So what's different is the type of like injuries you see. And Mm. when I trained in 2007 to 2009, the, the drug epidemic was just starting to shift and increase. Like in terms of subway suicides, people jumping in front of trains in the subways. There are no subways in Suffolk County. So people jump in front of the Long Island Railroad. How many of them are in Suffolk County every year? Was it dozens or just a handful? It's handful to dozens. Because unfortunately, you do get circumstances where you can tell that it was very intentional that they were on the tracks. What are the circumstances that tell you that? Unfortunately, it's the conductors. The eyewitness, someone jumps in front of the train. Correct, correct. Or they watch the train come at them. And it is such a traumatic event to the conductor who cannot stop that train, even if they wanted to. But clearly that person is intent. And again, what brings a person to that point? I don't know. I can just only honor whatever it is that they're feeling that brought them to that point. But in terms of life going on, thinking about the conductor, some of them are truly, truly devastated and impacted by events like that. And it it happens too often. So the girl from the city who's out here, what's unique for you uh, with a less diverse community, shall we say? 
it's interesting that you say that because it was a unique opportunity for me in terms of a woman of color growing up in the city where, again, it is very diverse. And I did grow up in a predominantly black community to come out to Suffolk County and now work in a predominantly white community and think that all these things are going to be different. But it's actually, in essence, not. We create such differences amongst ourselves and there really aren't. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the heart of it, we want to love our families. At the heart of it, we want to socialize and, and interact. At the heart of it, we want to be able to pay our bills. We want to be stable. We want to be able to sort of give back to the next generation. So in Suffolk County, you almost sort of get on the defense a little bit as a black woman coming out into this mm-hmm. society, you know, sort of double minority, if you will, that it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be so hard. And when you just meet people on the level of, I want the same things that you do, We're equal in that regard. What changes would you like to see within the system you work in that would help you do your job better? Beyond just more money and more staff. You know what I mean? What do you think? (laughs) Oh, that's it. That's That's number one, two, three, and four. What's number five? You know, in terms of some, you know, diversity and race and issues like that, I haven't felt that impact. You're doing a job and you're out to get an answer. It just is what it is. Who shot this person? Not who shot this black person. Who strangled this person? Not who strangled this white person. It's who did it? Why? And let's get them. So I'm protected in that I'm not interacting with the person on the street corner. I'm just, okay, this person is dead. Death is the great equalizer. I'm in somewhat of a protected bubble in that I am only charged with sort of this person's cause and manner of death. So in that regard, your medical examiner isn't that much involved in your community. It's insulated from politics by it and large. It absolutely is. Now, what are the social services you think would benefit being funded more, having whatever the resources they need to be more effective that would cut deaths that arrive at your doorstep? Drug treatment? Drug treatment would most certainly sort of cut back on overdoses, but mental health services. So much of of drug overdoses happen in people with mental health issues. And mental health is just, oh, we don't want to talk about that, but mental health is real. Mental health services is paramount to our community. And it even goes into, to some degree, obesity. Some of your overeating is a mental health issue. Some of your undereating is mental health issue. So really at the, the top of what could be addressed, I think first and foremost, mental health. And then after that, things that keep people stable, access to living in safe environments, living right on top of expressways, you're going to have more lung disease, not having access to healthy foods, you're going to have a lot more people eating fast foods and getting heart disease. So people who, you know, they don't have anything walkable in their communities, creating more parks and more tracks where people can exercise and get outdoors more. Knowing what you know, and seeing what you see, and that beautiful thing you just said about mental health. Because what I believe now is that if we all get honest, we've all been brushed by that a little bit during Absolutely. the COVID. What are you doing to take care of yourself during the COVID? What are you doing? I joke with my friends. My life was an exercise in social distancing long before we had to social distance. I'm a homebody. My mother is the, if the sun is out, she's got to be moving. She's got to leave the house at least once. And my father and I, we come home on Friday, we put on a robe, and we're not back out the house until Monday. Are you kidding (laughs) me? Are you just a happy person in general? Depends on who you ask. (laughs) Because you seem like one. 
I try to be with this job and with sort of death in general. People who work in this industry have to sort of create a barrier. You have to protect yourself. Not that you take death lightly, but there's got to be a barrier. You absolutely respect the person who was on your table. There's someone's mother, brother, sister, cousin, loved one. But you cannot throw yourself into who this person was because you will be emotionally crippled. Um, So there's that wall that I create. Life is to be enjoyed. Absolutely. Life is to be enjoyed. Absolutely. Dr. Hall, you are such a light. Thank God, you what so a wonderful much. light you have to you. I am so grateful to you. And I hope that when I die, you, my body gets sent to your office. <laughs> Dr. Odette Hall is the Suffolk County Medical Examiner on Long Island. If you've been wondering about the impact on mental health during the pandemic, your own or others, Be sure to check out my conversation with psychiatrist Dr. Julie Holland. She says the ambiguity about when the pandemic will end has been a challenge from the beginning. In the beginning, everybody was like, if I just knew when this would end, I would be okay. You know, if I knew it was just for the summer or, you know, I mean, when it started, it was like, if I knew it was just April, right? But that was a big deal uh, for the first few months with my patients was just this idea that they needed to be able to encapsulate it. You know, if it could be compartmentalized, then they could deal with it. Hear more of my conversation with psychiatrist Dr. Julie Holland at heresthething.org. After the break, I talk with my sister, Jane Baldwin-Sasso, about how she moved her physical therapy practice to Zoom. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today 
at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late. Very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. You know how there are some people in life who just make everything better? My physical therapist is like that. Her treatments make all the difference, or they did, before the pandemic. My sister Jane is a physical therapist, not mine, of course. She works in upstate New York with children and the elderly. For her... 2020 was a very chaotic year. So when COVID first came back in March, we were very confused. We didn't really know what was happening. When I left my school job, we got an, e- an announcement on the on the PA said, check your email immediately. So I'm like, hmm. So we, we, we knew things were happening. We just had no idea. And then we saw an email that said, today's our last day of school. We have no other information. So I just packed up things for, you know, the next few days thinking, well, we're a few days off. This is weird. And then um, it came to be that that it just extended on and on. And then Governor Cuomo stated in May that we're done for the school year. So we were doing a lot of platforms like Zoom. So if you can imagine Zoom physical therapy with children <laughs> is just very hard because they don't understand why I'm not with them, why we're not in school. My name is Mrs. S to the kids and they are Mrs. S. Why can't we go to your therapy room and do what we always did? And so you have to help to calm their concerns initially. And then we have to think about really formatting things for a computer screen as compared to they come to my room and I have an obstacle course set up or I have a mat on the floor and we're going to do stretching. Now we're on a Zoom call. And so it's just, you have to format everything you do differently. It's sad. It's sad for the kids. It's sad for the teachers and the therapists. And it's challenging. But, you know, we keep rising rising to the occasion every day to try to make it fun. We, we change the way we do things uh, just to engage the kids on the screen. So I wanted to say one thing, too, that that you know, there was a little bit of a silver lining in that the parents who never see what I do ever, because I'm in school with their children, they don't see, they really got to see firsthand grandparents and parents what we do. And they really were like, how do you do this? You know, I have my kid home now with me and I don't know how you do it. So some of that was, you know, a little bit insightful for the parents. And then with my other job all summer, I I started full-time at the rehab job when school ended in June, and we were in the very thick of COVID at that time. And as you know, I worked in a a nursing home. They they were just inundated with COVID. It was overwhelmingly stressful and sad. And what we had to do was massive amounts of PPE, you know, just an N95 covered with another mask, covered with a face shield. Your husband got COVID. Yes. He's so careful, so careful. Before COVID, he's very kind of a germaphobe guy, but he's always been with the kids when they were little, wipe this and wipe that. And just like that, it was sort of ironic. But um, the only places he really ever went to consistently was our gym 
really regularly. What were his symptoms and how did that all play out with him? How was it? What was his COVID experience? He really um, had what he thought was uh, kind of a tough bout with allergies. So he called our doctor and said, hey, my, can I get something stronger than over the counter? But um, the doctor said, well, we should get you tested. So he went to get tested and he really was like, come on, just give me the prescription for the allergy meds. But it turned out positive. And then the boys and I got phone calls from New York State Department of Health. And it was pretty quick, pretty shortly after his results were in. Within two hours, we all got phone calls to be home immediately. Whatever you're doing, stop what you're doing. We were like, really? And they were pretty strict about it. With your work with hospitals and doctors and and your interaction with the medical profession, is it assumed that hospitals are unsafe places to a degree, that we should avoid hospitals as much as possible? You know something, to be honest with you, hospital admissions are so down when COVID started ramping up because people who wouldn't think twice said, oh, I'm going to the urgent care, I'm going to the ER because my I have a, to- a toenail, a hangnail, whatever. Now they're like, the last place I want to be is the hospital. You know, it's very different than what it was. We, our rehab gym, which I, I used to joke and say, it's the happiest place on earth. It's restoration, it's music, it's happiness. People come in with a grumpy face and they leave smiling like, oh, you know, that was a great workout. And they don't want to get up and try to walk, but we walk them in the parallel bars and they feel better. They feel accomplished. That's been shut down. Since March 17th, our gym has been shut down. We do all bedside treatments in their rooms because residents in the in the um, nursing homes are not allowed to leave their rooms. It's called COVID isolation. And it's just very, it, it, that in and of itself for someone who's not sick at all is, is something that is detrimental. It's isolating. It's very depressing. I go in a room now to treat a patient and their roommate is like, hey, can I do that with you too? Just because they're Mm. lonely and want to do, I've had more roommates ask me, you know, what are you doing? Open the curtain. Can I do it too? I'm like, no, because I only have a doctor's order for this person. Right. So it's just hard. You mentioned how school-age children who under ordinary circumstances wouldn't be able to view the work you do, that a silver lining was for them to be exposed to exactly what's going on when their kids are in your care and so forth and under your direction. Were there any other silver linings or the things that have happened, not just work-related, which is something that's happened during the COVID, that you said to yourself, I'm going to keep that. We're going to hold on to that. For me, honestly, I have grown children. My oldest is 23. My younger just turned 21. And we had an empty nest for literally two months. And we we geared up for empty nest. I was anxious about it and sick about it. I'm like, I, I'm a mother and I'm so worried. And he, we had the empty nest and we were loving it. We were golfing and having a great time. And then COVID came and back to the house came both of the kids. And, you know, they're grown. And it's it's strange to have these four adults in the house that we have card nights and, um, you know, dinner. My fr- Another friend of mine texted me and said, Jane, you're never going to have this time again, the four of you. Yeah. So to have us under the roof is just, you know, uh, nice. And I know it's going to come to an end, but with COVID, like you said, we're, we're home a lot more. One of the silver linings of the COVID for me, especially at my age, is to realize how to take better care of myself. And I will imagine that when this is over and people can re-emerge and get back into society, uh, however changed they may be, you're going to have a line going down the block of people who are going to need a lot of body work. 
a lot of people said that same thing is like, I've had it. Uh, my body hurts everywhere. Cause who do they come to if their body hurts at the school? The teachers, my room, Jane, my neck, my back. I've had a lot of teachers come to me with, you know, at a higher rate than ever before. And I think a lot of that too is the stress levels are high, which releases all that cortisol in your body all the time. You're running kind of on a high level of cortisol. Thank you, Jane. My love to you and we'll talk to you later. Thank you, sweetie. You're welcome. Very welcome. Jane Baldwin-Sasso is a physical therapist in upstate New York. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend and be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, I talk to clarinetist David Gould about COVID's impact on his life as a professional musician in New York. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. The COVID pandemic was a crushing blow to performers. For professional musicians, especially those who perform with large ensembles, most of their work came to a complete halt. David Gould plays clarinet in the orchestra 
of the American Ballet Theater, and the pandemic's toll goes beyond the loss of his livelihood over the last year. The biggest effect since this, obviously, I mean, the loss of my father and my mother uh, being ill at the same time, and then, you know, the same story that now over 400,000 people have gone through. You can't be there to comfort and, um, and all that sort of thing. I mean, the, the silver lining, if, if you can, can call it that, this, all this downtime, this, you know, no time playing or rehearsing or traveling or all that sort of thing. Um, I was able to spend more time with my family like everybody else. And we kind of had a pod with my folks. Uh, we would go out, spend weekends there, and I was hanging out with them, and I was helping my dad with stuff around the house, and we we got closer. You know, we, I mean, we had a, a normal relationship like everybody else, you know, ups and downs, but nothing bad. But we just got closer doing things, and so that was the, the silver lining of the whole thing from that side. You know, of course, artistically, to lose all real opportunities to kind of share to be in the same place with people in, you know, in a, in a hall. I think every performer wants to share. They want to share their story. They want to give to the audience. And I mean, as musicians, it's our job to interpret what someone else wrote and inspire those listening to draw people in, to make them love this music as well. And there's a feeling walking out on stage, you know, it's that feeling, the excitement, this, this intangible, uh, feeling that you you know you put the you know the uniform or the tails or the, whatever it's going to be you're going to walk out and you're going to play and um, share and that's you know obviously the financial hit is is huge. Describe your dad. Your dad was retired. What kind of work did he do? So he uh, he was a pressman for the Daily News back in the day. He did that for about 27 years. And uh, while he was doing that, he he had his own business. Believe it or not, he would um, rebuild. Uh, fuel pumps and water pumps for old cars. <laughs> and uh, myself and my two brothers, you know, it was the family business. So we'd come home from school, we would help out, we would all do some of that stuff. And um, it was just how it went. And But he had been retired now, oh, about eight or nine years, I would say. And, um, you know, he was just, you know, enjoying life, you know, doing doing his thing. And, and thus your career as a classical uh, artist. How did the clarinet come into your life? It's funny, the clarinet started from him also. He, uh, all three sons had to pick up an instrument. It was, you know, you're going to learn an instrument. That's what we do. And uh, my older brother played trumpet. And uh, I looked up to him. I wanted to play the trumpet. And uh, my father said, no, no, you know, Robert's doing that. Why don't you, why don't you play the clarinet? And he was in a phase where he was all into Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't know, we were actually at an old car swap meet of all places. And um, there was a guy there who I think was a music teacher, but he also did some art things and would end up at car shows with instruments selling them, which <laughs> doesn't sound so kosher to me, but it is what it is. So I ended up, got my first clarinet that way and uh, made my way with it and um, kind of got inspired when I hit high school. I was a band teacher that was inspirational and did everything we could to not touch the table. Did your father have any pre-existing conditions, if you don't mind my asking? Well, I mean, look, he was not exactly the portrait of health. He um, he had had some infections. He had diabetes. Right. How quickly did this all uh, play out? He, he What happened? You know, he went in the hospital and they, you know, I think they were testing every few days and it was negative, 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 negative. And then one day positive. Uh, in fact, my mother caught it there too, we believe. And, you, and they think he got it where? 
in the hospital. No, he had been in the hospital for an infection he was fighting. And he, uh, you know, they were testing him and he, he ended up with it in his like second, the third week in the hospital, beginning of the third week of the hospital. So, and, and he died within a week of being diagnosed? Basically, yeah. Oh my God. And my mother, she had it, she was at home. I mean, she, it, for her, it seemed like a, I would say a bad flu. You know, she was out really bad for about a day and a half, two days, and then slowly, you know, aches and pains went away. And by that was a Monday, and by Friday she was, you know, felt more like herself again. So, you know, in in one thing, and this is my my thought with classical music, it's a hundred and I don't know what is it, a hundred, a hundred and ten, a hundred and eighteen people, twenty twenty people on stage. It's not uh, Shostakovich unless we have the whole gang up there, you know. And uh, and I'm wondering, do you miss your colleagues? Yeah. So I'm the luckiest until all this. I felt like I was the luckiest guy in the world because I'm, you know, I'm a member of the American Ballet Theater Orchestra. And so we play in New York in our seasons. Um, uh, but I'm also, you know, a sub or an extra musician with a lot of these great groups. And it's special to make music together. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's an ensemble of things. And it's like you said, you know, you don't have that one part. I mean, the show can go on, but it's not the same thing. It's a yeah. family. I mean, we've had countless Zoom calls since this has gone on and just, you know, checking in coffee time. And we spend more time, I think, with the dancers in those uh, than we sometimes are during the seasons. You know, it's just a lot going on. Are you staying in touch with some of the people you work with? Of course, you know. um, How are they coping? You know, they're they're doing their best, the same thing. You know, it's uh, the finances, so they're figuring that out. and, And also, it's the same thing, you know, one month, two months, three months, okay, six months, okay, nine months. And you start to hear about people who are moving away, people that are selling their extra instruments. And then finally, there's some, you know, I'm friendly with a lot of jazz musicians. I mean, I know some jazz musicians who have kind of just said, I think I'm done, you know, just because I can't, I can't make a year, 18 months without any sort of income. Friends of mine were having a conversation, a couple of us, they work in all kinds of different fields. We were talking about how are all of us going to get erased by the COVID? Like, is the COVID going to come back? When it, when it starts, people are going to be like, well, you, you, your career was a pre-COVID career. It's literally BC, before COVID. That's right. Uh, and they want everything new. Is it like an Etch-A-Sketch that people are going to want to just flip it over and, and erase everything <laughs> and say, let's start everything new? Now, you're still in the uh, ensemble there at ABT? Mm-hmm, yeah. And you haven't been given any indication. Are they are they thinking about fall of this year? Well, our spring season was canceled, of yes. course. Uh, um, the fall, we're hopeful for the fall. You know, right. we're hoping that it'll that it'll happen. But this, you know, we have to wait and see, like everybody else, like everything else. Mm-hmm. It's unreal. You're not performing that much classical music, and you're certainly not performing any under the circumstances you normally do. Are you listening to more classical music as a result? <laughs> Yeah, of course. I mean, I've been listening to everything from Brahms to Tchaikovsky to Shostakovich. And it's almost, a, it's in a way, it's kind of memory lane, thinking of the things that we used to do and all this and um, the concerts that we just did and, and, and projects we're working on. But um, yeah, of course, trying my best to listen as much as I can. My, my aunt, who's in her 80s, uh, who's a poet, she actually was giving me a hard time that I don't have good speakers at home. I should be listening to more. My kids should be hearing more music, more classical music. What are you doing? Like, <laughs> it kind of guilted me into uh, taking it seriously again. What's a nice, soothing, 
piece you recommend people listen to just calm them down at the end of another COVID-impacted day? I would still stand by this Brahms piano trio, B major, number one. Uh, there's a recording I like with the trio de Trieste. It's an old recording. Uh, you know, we, we pick our favorite recordings based on what we're, we hear first sometimes or what sticks with us or what makes a, uh, an impact. The trio de Trieste, here it is. Is that what you said? Yeah. Just the first couple bars you'll hear just in the piano, it's just your shoulders drop and then the cello comes in. Oh, it's just, it's really, it's magical. And, and, and no joke, I mean, it's, this sounds silly, like a public service announcement for classical music, but I'm just thrilled that you're putting this out there for people that might not know classical music and nobody should ever be intimidated by it. And that sounds maybe ridiculous, but it's, you just try a little bit end up eventually hopefully going to a concert. I mean, you asked about missing colleagues. I miss my colleagues, but I miss sitting on stage and being lost in this sea of sounds and music, you know, the waves and the, I mean, you get lost in there. It's, it's look, we call it playing. We're playing. It's fun. It's, uh, I mean, it's sometimes hard work, but it's really special. I always say that when I go to the movies, I'm often disappointed. And when I go to the theater, I'm sometimes disappointed. And when I go to the symphony, I'm never disappointed. Never. It's the best evenings I've ever had in my life. My God, it's, it's, it's one of the things I miss the most. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Stay safe. Thank you so much and stay safe. Be well. Clarinetist David Gould. My thanks to him, Dr. Odette Hall, and my sister, Jane Baldwin-Sasso. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. As David Gould recommended, this is the Brahms Piano Trio Number 1 in B Major from the Trio di Trieste. is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. 
Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.